Hey everyone, welcome to Talking Force. We're in the lab today with a special guest. His name is Thomas Beckett. He was the athletic director uh, during my time uh, at Yale and as, as well as many years before that. So today we're gonna go on a little bit of a journey, um, kind of hear the story, uh, his personal journey, um, kind of some of the accomplishments that people, people may know about at Yale and maybe some that they don't. Uh, and then today we'd like to also get a little bit of commentary about everything that's going on with athletics. So without further ado, Mr. Beckett, thank you so much for coming on. Thomas, great to see you. Happy to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank <clears throat> you. Well, Mr. Beckett, you know, again, like I said, we, we first met a few years back um, working with the lacrosse team and then the football team. But could you just tell everybody just a little bit, uh, how do you end up at Yale? And then you were there for quite a bit. Uh, what made you stay? So we'll just kind of start off a little bit. How did you start your career off? Well, it was no, uh, certainly no master plan, Thomas. It was one that I followed a path, as we often share with our students, a path that you were passionate about. I loved athletics. My dad was a coach. My mother was a teacher. So I got involved in athletics as a student athlete myself and continued on that path as a coach and one thing after another, I got a chance to get involved in college athletics at a community college in Butler, Pennsylvania. It was kind of the start of my athletic coaching and administrative career. Uh, from there, I uh, <clears throat> met up with a former coach at the University of Pittsburgh who became the athletic director at San Jose State University. His name was Dave Adams, and Dave asked me if I would be interested in joining him as an associate athletic director in San Jose State University in California. So I thought that was an exciting opportunity, and I joined him there. And long story short, met up with a tremendous set of coaches, one of whom was a gentleman by the name of Jack Elway. And Jack was our football coach, and uh, you will re remember that name. His son, John, was the quarterback at Stanford. And San Jose would play Stanford every year in an early season game. And Coach Elway was a very creative coach and did a lot of exciting things with his offense. And... It certainly inspired his students to explore all these really intriguing offensive schemes. Uh, we were able to defeat Stanford three years in a row. Another shortcut through this passage of time, Coach Elway was offered the head coaching position at Stanford and he asked me to join him. From there, I was given an opportunity to continue by accepting the position as director of athletics at Yale. So that is a very short version of 30 plus years of an athletic journey through college athletics, meeting extraordinary people, with very creative, innovative concepts, all centered on the student athlete and the student athlete's growth and development, and certainly their enjoyment of the experience of being a member of a college campus, participating in both the academic and athletic experience at those institutions, but doing so with the guidance of some very extraordinary, brilliant mentors. And that always intrigued me. Thus, my fascination with you and your approach to helping our students become bigger, stronger, faster students. Well, that's quite a journey, and and I want to I want to ask one question: Is uh, you I know you played sports, but then there, I think everybody kind of has this defining <laughs> moment of do I want to stay on coaching side or go to administration side? And again, they can work synergistically; they can work 
uh, opposing of each other. What did you do when, when you made that switch from being a coach to there? Like what was some of your thought processes? Cause you did have a lot of coaching tendencies. Um, and I think anybody that was at RTH or just saw you at the games, there was a lot of, uh, mentorship and development that you kind of alluded to. What was your thought process when you decided to make the leap kind of going full, uh, administration? Well, that's a terrific question. I don't know that I've explored the answer to that fully, but I'll give it a try. What I was fascinated with is the idea of being in a position to provide help to coaches who were working to build strong programs, being in a position to help student athletes who wanted to be as good as they could possibly be. And I felt that being in athletic administration, I was given more of an audience, more of an opportunity to support coaches and programs and students than I might have been working with just one team. And I really was fascinated by the whole idea of engaging in a community through athletic administration. There are a lot of things that we do with students and coaches to embrace the projects in a community. And I think once again, as an administrator, you have more opportunity in that arena than you do as a coach working with your own students. I love the idea of coaching, still do. But I'm very happy that I made that move many, many years ago. I uh, loved every minute of it and would uh, repeat that journey anytime, anywhere. That's awesome. Well, you met, you mentioned to, you know, that journey. And, and I think that if anybody who's ever been at Yale, uh, it was magical. And I'm, and I'm sure two other universities um, have similar um I don't know, just experiences or cultures that are unique to them. But the Yale one was pretty special. And the fact that I remember one of my first things is, uh, you know, you get in there and you might have the next future president. I mean, that's not even hyperbole. You might or Supreme Court justice. And so you have it, it's happened of, before. <laughs> yeah, we, have, we have these super intelligent uh, young men and women that are going to go out and change the world. And so, yes, you are working athletics, but you're also dealing with future leaders what are some stories that, you know, maybe people know about or don't know about? Because I know we could do, you know, hours and hours of these stories because they're endless. But what would be some of the top memories that maybe people um, wouldn't know about or kind of stories that kind of shed light on that community that uh, was so special? Well, I got a call one day from the president of Yale, Rick Levin, and he said to me, Tom, President Bush is in my office. This is George Bush, Herbert Walker, the 41st president, not his son, George W. And he said, President Bush would like to know if you could provide him with a tour of our campus and in particular, some of our athletic facilities. And President Levin is a very serious man, but he has a wicked sense of humor. And I thought for sure he was pulling my leg. And I said, sure, Rick, uh, what do you want me to bring over to meet with the, the president of the United States? Kiddingly. And he said, Tom, I'm serious. This, this is a real opportunity for us because the president is very interested in seeing the old baseball field where he and his teammates were able to earn the opportunity to go to Omaha and play for the national championship. So he was very serious. And I did make the walk over to meet with President Bush. And I spent the next two hours with him. And he wanted seriously to meet our students. So we drove out to our athletic fields. It was an early afternoon session and <laughs> we walked on to the baseball field and it just so happened that our coach John Stuper was meeting with his team on the left field foul line and that was the entry that I used 
to access the field. And clearly Coach Stuper couldn't see my arrival nor my guest, but his players did. And they started to just stare in our direction. And Coach Stuper turned around and was absolutely blown away by the President of the United States. So we spent the next 20 minutes with the president speaking to the young men of Yale baseball. Uh, it was fascinating. He talked to them about his experience as a student at Yale, loved playing baseball and the memories he had. And it was so uplifting for all of us. Uh, that's just one example of the special opportunities that we are afforded when you're able to interact with, as you mentioned, leaders of industry, leaders of education, business, uh, and certainly politics worldwide. I think that that's just such a funny story because you could probably get even more give even more examples of that. But as you mentioned, um, they always talk about Yaley's taking care of Yaley's and just that kind of culture. And, uh, I was shocked at so many times that I would go around campus and whether it's the president or some Sterling professor or anyone like that, just the openness um, that people have just to be able to talk and to talk about being at the tip of the spear. And I think about some of my partnerships with engineering or the school of management and those kind of things. I don't know if that'd be possible uh, at every school because when I would go and meet with people, there's just this intense sense of community uh, all around the campus. And I remember saying that, you know, you walk in there, you know, you feel like you could take on the world. And that's a pretty magical feeling to have every single day that you go to work. Um, but I think it's the people that really make that possible because it never stops. That energy and the vibe comes right out of the concrete and goes right <laughs> into your mind to try to change the world. It's very true, Thomas. I do think that there are caring people on college campuses all over the world. Uh, clearly that's true at Yale, and we benefit from that every single day by having the access to uh, professors that care passionately, clearly about their area of study, but they also wanna share their knowledge with people that are interested, and you're a perfect example of that you reached out and spoke to the members of the engineering department and created some very unique opportunities for our students in athletics by combining this interest in the academic approach to their lives on campus and their interest in helping people develop their minds and bodies in other ways. It was a brilliant contribution that you made in one that we are still benefiting from. Well, that's good. Well, I want, want to piggyback on that too. You, you mentioned the community and, and um, just that kind of environment. One of the things that you taught me, and I'm sure any coach that you know was under you, um, patience. Because that's the other thing too at Yale is it is a behemoth. There are tons of resources, but it's like its own little country. And so I remember talking to you and you would say, well, you know, it takes time to get things done. You know, over 10 years, I was like, oh my goodness, this guy deals in decades. I deal in minutes. I need to learn this to, to just take a breath. And that was something. Walk me through some of the other things that you kind of learned to approach because, um, you know, with that kind of like, because I know that was something that was really you know, both beneficial and helpful for me, um, but also put things kind of in perspective as maybe you're climbing up in the professional career, you need to start thinking out, you know, years at a time and, and you know, stay the course, if that makes sense. Well, I do. Personally, Thomas, I believe passionately in that approach. And that came from a gentleman that I was blessed with the opportunity to spend some really quality time with. His name is Carm Koza. He's a Hall of Fame coach, was at Yale for over 35 years. It was our head coach for 32, still the winningest coach in the history of the Ivy League. And he would always talk about, you need to be patient. You cannot rush the development of young people. They will come and develop and learn uh, 
and listen when they're ready. And there are a lot of reasons why they may not be ready at the moment that you hoped that they would be. But if you work with them and you give them all the sense of caring that you need, I heard a quote from an ex-president, Theodore Roosevelt, who said, our students don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And I would share that at the start of every academic year in our startup meeting, orientation meeting with the returning staff and the new members of the department. And then I would also talk about that in my meetings with coaches uh, throughout the year with the notion that this is a process that takes great deal of time, effort, and patience. And I think it is absolutely one of the building blocks of why some coaches are able to instantly connect with their students and others will take time. The idea of just being patient, understanding is a gift. And those who have that gift deal with it brilliantly and have wonderful results. Those that come by, come by that gift slower, take a little bit more time. But at the end of the day, all of them that I have been able to continue to communicate with really do believe that it's true. So whether you're trying to raise money to build a brand new facility or to renovate a locker room or to endow a program or a sport, that doesn't happen overnight. Clearly the thought of doing that is wonderful to have if you could wave a magic wand and have everything you want in the next dawn, but that's not possible. So you need, obviously, a situation and a staff of leaders on your campus who are in concert with that belief. And you also need a willing group of gifted coaches who are programmed to connect with their students in the best ways possible. You mentioned to me when I first started, you, you welcomed me on board and you said, now I'm just going to give you some advice. Just make sure when you talk to the kids, don't ever be wrong. I was like, well, okay, what, what's he getting at? And you're like, you go to me, you're like, if you talk about sciencey stuff, there's going to be some molecular, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and they're going to read the book. They're going to read the textbook. They're going to know, they might know more about it than you. So just don't ever be wrong. If you're not sure, get back to them. So I'm like, okay. And I remember we went, to one of the lifts and one of the kids were talking he goes well it's because the mTOR pathway of the bob bob receptor and yeah he's a senior either pre-med or one of the, I can't even remember what the major was but I was like oh that's what he was talking about and then a few years later we had a we had an intern start talking and uh one of our kids was like that's not correct that's not the way that the endocrine system works with the beepity boppity boop and they they go toe for toe and I and I told them that I said you know, you got to be careful here is that you know, these, these guys and, and these ladies, uh, you know, they're very, very smart. And so, you know, you can't fake the funk. And I think one of the things that helped me a lot was that knowing you may, you need to be squared away. You may need to explain it. Um, but the nice thing is, is that, especially with the community is once it's established that, you know, your decisions are made in their best interest and that you care about them and those things. I remember it got to the point where I would have players be like, Oh coach, please don't explain to us why all this. I was like, but I'm happy to do it. They're like, you love this. It's like, well, I like winning. And they're like, well, well, we trust you on that. That's that's good. And so it was less and less, but I thought that was such a valuable lesson. Um, because as we go forward, we have coaches all the time as they're trying to find themselves and kind of, you know, figure out what style they have. I think you really have to be genuine. If you're heavy in the science, you need to own it. If you're heavy in the relationships or technical queuing or X's and O's, you need to own it. How would you how would you recommend a coach, whether say they're young starting assistant, what would be some ways that you would frame their development and say, Hey, these are things you should be thinking about, you know, in your first year, go like one year, five year, 10 year, as you grow, what would you recommend for an assistant as far as to think about? Well, I think that what you just shared, Thomas is really valuable. And I'm impressed even more so 
than I have with your career. You did exactly that. You were aware of the intellectual curiosity of your students and you paid attention to that. And it wasn't long before they trusted you because you demonstrated to them immediately the notion that you care. And they obviously knew that you were very bright and you had tremendous experience and you were willing to share that. But they trusted you because you took the time to let them know how much you cared. I think any coach, a head coach, newly appointed, a new young assistant coach needs to spend time with their students in ways that is more than just providing information, more than sharing techniques and the history of the sport. It's getting to know that student, getting to know that student's family, getting to know what motivates that student so that your interaction is going to be certainly about your expertise in the sport that that student loves. But the building of the relationship needs to be on a solid base of trust. And when that trust develops, who knows where that relationship will go. And the trust comes from that sense of caring. So I would share that, and I have, with every new coach that came through our athletic department at Yale or at Stanford or at San Jose State. I just always felt that that was a gift that came to me in terms of an awareness of the importance of that ability to care. And I wanted to make sure I could offer that advice to those who were willing to listen. Yeah, and I, I think you can't skip that step. We often, you know, common situation, new coach gets hired. It's usually a dumpster fire. There's things that need to get fixed. And it's yeah. just kind of, they'll say to us, okay, you know, everything, you know, we're not good. We don't this, we have bad morale. You know, starting with relationships, I think, is something that very quickly can make a huge difference. Biology is biology. It'll take time. Physics take care of themselves. But creating that buy-in, um, you know, starting with the emotion first to then drive the actions and then to take care of the training and development. What are some of the like some success, success stories that you've seen throughout your time? Um, cause again, you had programs that were good. You had programs that went up and down, you had this and that, when you kind of looked from the 10,000 foot level, what were some of the, the stories or lessons maybe you, you learned as thinking about each sport as a franchise, what were some of the other commonalities you saw in the programs that were consistently good? Well, I think that going back through this, uh, almost 50 years of involvement with college athletics. Uh, there's some remarkable coaching faculty members that I've had the opportunity to work with. And you're exactly right that the starting point in all of these programs uh, is very, very different. It's very different for the student. It's very different for the coach. I remember Bill Walsh, the Hall of Fame NFL coach, uh, one multiple Super Bowls with the San Francisco 49ers came to coach at Stanford. He was bored to tears with retirement. And our head coach, Dennis Green, was given an opportunity to go to the NFL. And Bill Walsh was living in the community near Stanford's campus. And he actually called the president of Stanford and said, do you have any interest in talking to me about becoming your next head coach? So what I found working with coach Walsh was much different than you would find working with a newly appointed first year head coach. He came with this impeccable reputation, background that 
is beyond belief. And he approached practice every single day as if he was a first year coach. He wanted to make sure that not only his student athletes, but his assistant coaches understood how important this assignment was. It wasn't something that he was going to walk in and just because of his name and reputation, just take over the program. It was a deliberate effort to let everybody know this was the most important thing he was doing in his life. And I was just mesmerized by his approach. And every single day I would offer my assistance to him and be able to take him when he was going on a speaking engagement. I'd offer to give him a ride. I would try and get time with him on his calendar once a week, if possible, just to ask questions. I just found that it was so refreshing and so real that I wanted to find out how that came about. And he was so open to his approach and he was so genuine that you can't fool young people. You just have to be legitimate. You have to be honest. You have to let them know what this opportunity means to you. And he took over a program. We were a good football program. We were a bowl team uh, a year or two before Coach Walsh arrived. But he transformed it. He just made every day so important to his coaches, to our alums, to our student athletes. It was a lesson I'd never have forgotten. And then I backed that up with an opportunity to come to Yale and work with another legendary coach in Coach Coza. And then watching the young coaches that came uh, to work at Yale, Andy Shea, uh, chief among them, was just so eager and so thorough in his approach to preparing for practices. Tony Reno, Will Porter, Keith Elaine, John Stuper, Aaron Appleman. The list goes on and on, and I'm embarrassed that I can't have the opportunity to list all of them, Thomas. But when you hire a coach, that's the most important assignment an athletic director has because you are turning your student athletes over to this new leader. And it's your job as an administrator to make sure that you are finding the best possible candidate to take over this hugely important assignment. And that all came from watching the best of the best as I prepared for this position of being a director of athletics, I would take copious notes watching the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Coach Walsh and Coach Coza, and many others do their due diligence and prepare for the day, the every day that they spent with their students and how important it was to them. That's just a lesson that I thought was one of the most important I've ever learned. Well, in addition to that, what are some of the other things that, you know, as you mentioned, that's a key, key component to success within the department, and that's at the individual level as well. What are some other things we think about, you know, getting bigger, faster, stronger, you know, we think about being a good team player. And so everyone often talks about uh, talent identification for the athlete side. What does talent identification look like from an administrator to hire that coach? Because there is a wide range of coaches, and especially since the start of your career to now, um, I think the the the, the differences in, in coaching styles have gotten wider and wider. 
uh, especially with the addition of technology and some of the other advancements. But what are some of your core must-haves or things that you think about as you're looking uh, for a coach? Well, that's another very important component of the job of an administrator. Clearly, you want to do everything you can to find out about the coach that you're looking to hire. You want to speak to the students that that coach has worked with in the past. You want to speak with colleagues. I always found that it was really important to speak to the arch rivals of a coach. You get on the phone, the athletic director of the arch rival of the coach and the school where that coach is employed and find out all you can about that person as a, a colleague, as a competitor, as an administrator, as a professional. You find out a lot about what someone's like from the people who they've competed against. And I think that that is always an important path to take when you go after a new coach. You're looking for someone who understands the role of sport. You're looking for someone who understands what it is to be an honorable competitor. You're looking for someone who teaches the game the right way, honors the game, honors the rules of the game, is someone who competes fairly, passionately, fiercely. All of that is great, but you want someone who honors those who play the game and also who honors the game itself. So I'm knocking on wood. I'm trusting that that has worked for nearly five decades. And I share that piece of advice with anybody who is willing to listen. And I also share it with our coaches during the annual meetings that we have and ask them to tell me how do you think you come across to your students? How do you think you come across to your competitors? How do you think you come across to the fans who attend your game? What are the parents of your students think of you? What's your impression of the responsibility that you have in that particular arena? The conversations with educators are way deeper than the score of the game. Yeah, I think those are, you know, spot on points. And, and, I, and I don't know if you remember this, but I remember one aha moment that I had was that we were on the road. We had just lost. We were in uh, the dome up at Syracuse and it was afterwards. And I, I was pretty, I hate losing, uh, you know, even running up, being a runner up was the number one loser in my book. And I hated that. And I wanted to win. I thought we had a good team. And I'll never forget is that you came up to me at the, at the hotel afterwards, we we're packing everything up and you were like, I like the way that you got the guys prepped and the way they competed. And I was like, but we didn't win. And you were just like, Nope, I like the way the guys competed. And I was like, wow, that that's kind of uh that's something I got to think about. And I'll never forget because that was one of the catalysts that I used for the off season was there was no, winning or losing if you're playing the game and i like how you said honor the game by competing hard um that became one of the mantras that we had not only for uh the coaching staff but we applied that across other teams and that was pretty magical to watch that you know spring of 17 um fast forward to the fall of 17 and we go and win uh, a championship by competing for football uh as you mentioned there were so many championships there within such a short window of time it was hard to kind of keep track of it but the theme was just compete and it was actually one of our students actually brought up the point of talking about some of the younger first years. Yeah, these kids like to win. They need to like to compete. So you actually have to enjoy competing more than you do winning or losing because you're going to lose some games. And if that derails your entire process, I remember we lost football, lost to a team 
come in on a Sunday and everybody's all head down. He said, well, you know, what would you have done differently if you had won? Would it have changed your process and staying focused and having some of those lessons, you know, then go on to win the, that, like I mentioned in football, then in the spring of 18, we did okay. So we got that national championship <laughs> coach had originally, you know, tasked, uh, tasked us with, um, but that whole idea of competing was something that started with a, a simple conversation. I don't know if you remember it, um, but that became into the ethos of strength and conditioning is that we wanted to compete every day. If we won, that was great. If we lost, you know, what can we learn? But we take pride in just competing. And um, that, that went on for not only, like I said, uh, years of athletics, but also I know that was something we passed on to the interns that they, as uh, they went on, you know, we had over 160 of them and now 80 of them are employed somewhere in college athletics. They still talk about that of, you know, not being outcome oriented, but really staying focused on, on process. Are there any other things that you think that, you know, kind of get missed or glazed over here with kind of the big C change here going on in athletics? Uh, we're going to get into that with some of the stuff in the news, but are there any other things that you would just recommend, you know, that a, the young coach just really keep in the back of their mind as they go forward? I think that they need to be ever mindful of that young person that's looking to them for guidance, looking to them for instruction, looking for them as uh, being a positive role model. I think that there is a huge responsibility that our coaches have. And Thomas, you said it beautifully. You talk about the young interns that you have brought into the profession, the time you have shared with them. Uh, the brilliance of your work has always been the responsibility they have to instill in those young people that believe in them and trust them to do this job the right way to approach it holistically, to look at the bigger picture. I think if we can keep that as our focus, I think the world of athletics will continue to be the formula that keeps our country moving forward, brings our country together brings our programs, brings our students, brings our schools, brings our leagues together. We're working to enjoy the experience. The Olympic motto is that you value your opponent as greatly as any part of your training. Because without the competition, without the challenge of your opponent, you wouldn't nearly work as hard to be as good as you could be. So that opponent that you're facing this coming Saturday has taught you how to pay attention to the detail that your coaches are sharing with you, to honor the game, to be a great competitor, to be an honorable citizen, to be a great teammate. I think athletics is the greatest formula that we could ever come up with to bring our people together, whether it's your teammate, whether it's your school, whether it's your city, whether it's your country. Piggybacking off of that, what do you, what do you think about the current times? I mean, this is certainly... Uh, you know, pandemic wasn't enough. Let's throw in a little NIL for those listening that, you know, maybe uh, international listeners, uh, the NIL. So name, image, and likeness is this kind of, I don't know if it's taboo or it's been definitely a major point of athletics and crossroads of the original intent of amateur athletics. If you go back into the days, you know, go into the 1940s and kind of we'll start around in that time, you post-industrial revolution had some free time and you had some bandwidth and all the things that you mentioned um, there's tremendous societal value and competition and sharing and teaching you know kind of tribal values within different communities um, and so amateur athletics really kind of took off now since then uh, since its initial inception 
uh, there's some money involved. We never, <laughs> we never envisioned, you know, an individual player might have a million plus people in the palm of their hand, let alone an 18 to 21 year old, which is terrifying. But then now you start to combine that and sponsors take notice. There's this been this evolution. And so the NIL basically that came out and goes into effect is that, you know, individuals can make money off their name, but there's a, a ton of legal and ethical questions about using the brand of the university or using the brand of the team and how that goes. What is your take just kind of, and again, you can get as specific as you want or in general, but this is, this is certainly a, a major crossroad of college athletics. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Thomas, it's a sea change for college athletics. And to be perfectly candid with you, I think we're headed in a dangerous direction. I understand the concept that many people who are very passionate about name, image, and likeness and the fairness associated with it, reading where coaches are making millions and millions of dollars and students are not getting a penny. I understand all of that. I just think that there was a rush to judgment here to create what they felt was a fair system of sharing the wealth. Uh, I think that we've lost sight of the tremendous investment that universities are making in students and the value of the education that our students are receiving, the incredible support they're getting from their coaches, administrators, faculty, uh, the relationships that come from team building and the quest to do your best to win championships. I just wish we would have taken a little more time, gotten our best thinkers together to come up with some formula that would have helped all of this to get a better start. I don't know the answer. I really don't know it, but I would like to see the resources that are generated from the success of college athletics with these uh, very lucrative television contracts be shared with schools uh, more generously so that the schools could make it possible for the parents of our student athletes to travel to watch their sons and daughters compete for the school, to be able to come to campus and watch the games, uh, to possibly share uh, a stipend with each and every one of our students. I just heard the other day, you mentioned million dollar contracts. It was announced by one of the very famous coaches in college athletics that he had one of his players just receive uh, a million dollar contract to uh, represent however many country uh, companies, excuse me, in that region of the country uh, just to make an appearance or go to sign autographs or get pictures taken. Are they going to do that with every student on that campus? It's impossible to imagine. So if we would have been able to spend a little more time and put uh, some options on the table, I think we could have developed a better plan allowing all of our student athletes the opportunity to share in the wealth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just I remember learning about it. And, you know, obviously some of the legislation came from the senator in Connecticut. Um, and so as you're kind of looking at this and, and there definitely is a change that's happening. But the problem is, is when you rush into these situations, I mean, it sounds good in theory, but what are you going to do when one person's making 1.5 someone else can barely pay for their meal swipes and then you want to rally for the team. But if I get 500,000 more followers during this game, I'm going to get paid. And so those are different um, values 
that's suddenly now again, 18 to 21 years old, you're trying to think. And again, at the end of the day, I get my degree and and for, you know, anyone that's listening, uh, Yale didn't, yeah, those kids didn't get a break. They were going to class. They were doing their stuff. They were, you know, there was a real education. So there's a value, but I do know that some of the other schools, I just don't know what the underwater basket weaving degree is going to get you. So they might be looking at, I have a platform for four years to be able to monetize myself. And, and, and so should you, because again, we, we've had athletes that were non NCAA um, athlete sports and those individuals had sponsors, but I think people are going to quickly realize there's a harsh reality in the economics of business is that some people are going to get paid. Some people are not, some people are going to get exploited and they don't know that it's coming. And so there is a moral and fiscal responsibility. I think the institution has um, to kind of, you know, lay out all the options. But if you want to get into that, you know, environment, I, I wonder if, if, if division one has almost a for-profit section and a not-for-profit, <laughs> I can't even keep track when I go look at the, uh, some of the schools are like bragging. We've got an agent, we've got, you know, tax services right. and we support you. And then other ones is we want to be more traditional and, and maybe they're not revenue generating and everywhere in between. I just wonder if that's going to become a kind of a split market. So you'll have division one, a and division one B or how, how that works. Cause again, the resources, I mean, you start talking about have a, a roster of $50 million between your top kids. I mean, how are you going to compete with that? Now it's a bidding war. You're going to have that division. That's a great example. It could, you could have a division one part of your athletic department and one that is intramurals. Right. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine. And then fairness and equity and right. quality and all that stuff gets really blurry when, yeah, this, this, this team pulls in more ratings and therefore they have more kids on spot. We always talked about, you know, how many scholarships you have. Well, it's like, we've got X amount of scholarships and this amount of sponsorship. So suddenly now that's a whole new equation. <laughs> I can't even imagine. And you start, as you mentioned, you know, sign this, that I, I think every pizza place was suddenly thinking about, Oh, we're going to get every lineman we can come host <laughs> our pizza night. I could see stuff like that, but I, I don't know. That's again, it's just one of those things that, uh, and I remember when cell phones first really came out, you know, you'd go away on a team trip. It was just you and your team and you were completely locked in or training camp was just, just you and your teammates. Well, now the phones are going off. They're buzzing. They're going in here, there. Oh, sorry. My agent's calling. I got to go sign this deal. Like what, what are we talking about? Right. Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine. So I'd be, I'm very curious to see how this unfolds here. Um, you know, both during the pandemic, but then also afterwards, um, as, as it, uh, it kind of evolves here. So. A whole new challenge for universities and athletic directors and coaches. What do you think coach Walsh would say? What do you think, uh, coach Koza would say about all this? Uh, I shudder to think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I know, again, we've covered a bunch of different things. Um, we talked about training. We talked about uh, the development of uh, programs. Are there any other things that, you know, you want to just kind of um, put out there to kind of help some of our listeners? Again, we've got people all over the world, various stages of program development, or maybe they're in uh, the pro leagues. Are there any kind of, you know, just gems, um, you know, you kind of like to leave us with? Because I have a feeling you've forgotten more than what most people will know. So you need to make sure you share it with us. Cause uh, again, the experience that you had and the values uh, that you brought that program up on, obviously were successful um, both in wins and losses and championships. But I mean, anytime you come around campus and you see the interaction you have with the students and the alumni, I mean, it's like a giant family. It's unbelievable. And, you know, you come to new Haven and you have your time there and then you become an alumni and you built just such a, uh, such a, strong foundation of relationships to young people out there that are getting into this. Any other kind of parting thoughts for them to think about? Thomas, I think I'm going to focus on what you have done for Yale oh. and your expertise that you brought to our programs and the whole formula of preparing physically for competition and being strong mentally. The one thing that you were so adamant about that I worry that coaches don't think enough about, and that was the rest that you wanted our students to always be mindful 
of that they get fatigued mentally because of all of the stress that they have in the classroom. They get fatigued physically because of their devotion to prepare to compete. And then they get fatigued because of the stress that they have with competition, worrying about how the team will do, how they will do. And you always talked to our coaches about making sure that our students got enough rest. You were mindful of how much time we spent on the practice field. You were mindful of that same amount of time that was devoted to their development of their strength and conditioning in the training rooms, in the weight rooms, etc. I think that we have to be aware of the entire approach to this, the whole body, the whole mind, the whole psychology of this. And you were brilliant at that. You reminded our coaches that they need to be very, very careful with this particular aspect of the preparation of our students. I thought it was genius. I still do. Well, I appreciate the kind words. And we, you know, again, got to stand on the shoulder of giants with all the guests that we had and, you know, sharing some of their experiences from Coach Epley coming to visit from, you know, Dr. Bill. That was brilliant. That was the best visit I can recall. Having the opportunity to meet Boyd Epley on our campus and spend several hours with him, thanks to you. Well, I, I couldn't have done it without you. And again, given that opportunity and that platform to do it. And again, very excited, not only what we accomplished, but also too with the staff there, you know, the current performance staff, all of them came through the internship program. Coach TJ Bellinger is doing a great job as far as continuing some of those traditions and then kind of building off of it. Because uh, I think whether it's physically with actual buildings or um, the craft in our profession, I think that was just one of the biggest things that you passed on to us was that growth mindset and then competing. And more importantly, making sure that you stay humble and hungry to compete with yourself. So <laughs> that was uh, definitely a lesson uh, that made such a difference in all of us. So, well, thank you so much for coming on today. Again, can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me, uh, what you've done for the program and what you did for all of the students um, that passed through the hallways of Yale. So again, hopefully everybody listening, pay attention to some of these nuggets. We'd, if you've got any additional questions, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to reach out uh, to Mr. Beckett for you. And again, uh, thank you everyone for taking the time today to listen to Talking Force. Thank you guys. See you next week. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thomas.